As I said, we are in Acts chapter 12. We've been in this chapter for a little bit of time now, and our goal today, our intention today is uh, to finish up our study uh, of chapter 12 and, and begin even a little bit of chapter 13. I'll remind you, in case you've forgotten, a lot went on this week uh, in our lives, uh, but I'll remind you that Acts chapter 12 began with uh, one of the Herods, remember that's a title and a family name, one of the Herods deciding he was going to persecute the church. And as it began, he uh, seized one of the leaders of the Christian church. We're talking about 12, 15 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, one of those leaders was the Apostle James, the brother of John. We, we see him often in the Gospels. And he took him, he seized him. The scripture makes it clear that he took, he, he gave him the sword, which essentially means he had his head cut off. James, that's how our chapter begins. Seeing that that pleased a lot of people, crazy people if you ask me, but seeing that that pleased a lot of people, he seizes also Peter. Puts Peter in prison with the intention that he's going to execute Peter as well. Herod, not a, a particularly good guy, not a family with a particularly good reputation. We read or we know that there are the Herods that put the death all of those babies there in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. We know that one of the Herods, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist uh, also beheaded. Uh, and so this particular family line is not a great family line. And so James is dead. Herod turns his attention to Peter, puts Peter in prison. And as we saw and we spent most of our time last time, God miraculously freed Peter from prison. Herod, that Herod I mentioned, angered, uh, puts to death the guards that were supposed to be guarding Peter, and then flees from Jerusalem. So if you look at verse 19, I shouldn't say flee, he didn't like run away, but he, he got out of Jerusalem. And if you look at chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Now after Herod searched for Peter and did not find him, he examined the sentries and he ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, he went down from Judea to Caesarea, where he spent some time. We've talked about Caesarea. Caesarea is a Roman city. It was within the nation of Israel. Remember, at this time, the Romans occupied uh, the nation of Israel. Sometimes it's referred to as Palestine at that particular point in time in history. It wrote, Caesarea was located about 100 miles north and west of Jerusalem. It was a coastal city right there on the Mediterranean. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, you'll more than likely end up in Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. Um, quite a bit of archaeological discoveries to give you a real sense of what this Herod would have been encountering when he went there. Caesarea was the capital uh, or the headquarters for the Romans in the land of Israel during that particular time period. Again, about 100 miles north and west of Jerusalem. It was also about 50 miles down the coast, 50 miles south of two cities that are named Tyre and Sidon. And if you look at verse 20, those two cities are mentioned there. It says in verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon were not in the land of Israel. They were not uh, officially or exactly under Roman rule. The Romans uh, had overpowered them. Uh, 
uh, essentially were able to hold back supplies from them, but they were still an independent people. And the passage says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. The, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they were Phoenicians. You may have remembered that or heard that in passing during some of your history lessons in high school or uh, perhaps middle school. And as I pointed out, they maintained an independence from Roman rule. And so they were politically independent of the Romans, but they were very heavily dependent on the Romans for things like food and provisions. They were essentially either like peninsula cities or even an island type of city located just off the coast of the, just on the Mediterranean coast there. And so they could easily be shut down. No more ships going in, no more people going in to those particular places. And so the Romans essentially had control over them because they had no food, they had no provisions unless the Romans decided they would. So that statement there in verse 20, in which it says that Herod was angry with them, that's a problematic statement for the people of Tyre and Sidon. For this non-agrarian community, it meant no food. That's a big problem, don't you think? Anybody here? Are you with me? Yeah, that's a problem. It's a problem for me if it doesn't come at dinner time. And here are these folks, who knows when it's going to come again for them. And so their solution is to make nice with Herod. Find out why he's angry with us. We've got to work this particular thing out. It says there that they are able to convince, the word that's used is persuaded, this fella Blastus, to give them an audience with Herod. It's an interesting name. It reminds me of those like American warrior shows that we used to have, and you had Blastus and those, no, nobody's with me again. All right, tough crowd today. But it says they persuade Blastus. The word for persuaded is they bribed Blastus. How much is it going to cost for us to get an audience with Herod to figure out why he's angry with us so we can make up uh, with him? And so they go through that process. Everything is worked out between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the only thing remaining is now for these two cities and the representatives of these two cities to show their proper respect to Herod. And so Herod gathers everyone together. He's going to give a speech to his newly subjected subjects. And he's going to share whatever it is that he wants to share. And then the people, they're going to have to do their appropriate... I, could, I was trying to think of a word, butt kissing uh, to Herod. I, I don't know what the appropriate word is, and I apologize if that offends any of you. But that's essentially... What are they doing? Yeah, well, that's even worse. Um, so... Verse 21, on an appointed day, it said, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them, a speech. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. How about that? Now, if you're not a Bible reader, you might think that those kinds of events happen a lot in the Bible. They don't. Very rarely. There's a couple of instances like this in the Bible. One where uh, 
there was an earthquake, the earth opened up, and these folks that were opposing God and his people were essentially swallowed up in that small portion of the earth. But that's a rather rare type of thing that is found in our scriptures. But here Luke reports to us that this is what had occurred, that Herod gathered these most recently subjected subjects so that he could give a speech to them. Essentially, it was an opportunity for them to show obeisance to him. This is your opportunity to bow down, show that you're loyal to me, and they do so by chanting this, the voice of a God, not of a man. We learn here, it says in verse 21, that he put on his royal robes. Notice it says it's an appointed day. This isn't some random thing, Herod shows up, whoever's there is there. Rather, it's a scheduled event and everyone will be there. And so he puts on his royal robes. We learn from the historian Josephus, first century historian that lived in that day and wrote the history of the Roman people. He was a Jew himself and so he chronicled many of these events there in Israel. We learn from him that his royal robes were actually made from pure silver thread. Not just the color silver, but silver in and of itself, ground or whatever, made into these little threads. And from that, this man's royal robe was made. Josephus will go on to describe how Herod made this you know, triumphant entry right there into this arena. We go to the arena. If you've been there, you know that theater that we sit in there, outdoor amphitheater that we sit in. That's almost certainly where this event occurred. And that as Herod came into this with his royal robes made of silver, that the sun shone off of him, shined off of him, and essentially blinded the audience that was there in front of him. It just added to all that was going on there that day that it looks like this deity is sitting up there in front of us delivering this speech. Josephus's words were this, he described it this way, the sight of Herod inspired fear and awe in all of those who gazed intently upon it. And so perhaps it was that, or maybe it was a mix of that with the butt kissing that I mentioned earlier. It leads the people to start chanting and where it says there they were shouting, the, the idea is again and again and again. This isn't just one guy saying, the voice of God, not of a man, and the people looking over at him, but rather the whole crowd continually chanting the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. The implication, Herod sitting there receiving it, drinking it in, embracing it for himself. Now, Herod... Notice on a couple of, remember we noticed, took notice on a few different occasions, this particular Herod, Herod Agrippa, he was, he was the king of the world, so to speak, or at least that little world. And yet he was so dependent on the, the love and adulation of others. He just wanted to be liked by others. The reason why he arrested Peter and was going to put Peter to death is because he saw that it pleased others. And so he was this guy desperate for the, the love and support of other people. And so I'm sure he was loving this particular morning as people are chanting and calling out that he is a God and not a man. But as the scripture says, because he dared to receive the glory that belongs to God alone, God immediately brought judgment down upon him. Verse 20 says, 23 says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down 
And the reason is given because he did not give God the glory. And it says, and he was eaten by worms and that he breathed his last. This event is written about historically. You could Google it uh, or so, uh, and you can find the event. We know the exact year it occurred. It occurred in what we call AD 44, which is a good timestamp indicator for us of how long the church has been in existence. We think Jesus died somewhere around the year 30 AD, 31 AD. And so again, 12, 13, 14 years later, we know historically that this particular event occurred. Again, historian Josephus gives us a little more insight into this and explains that he was smitten with an incurable disease and that he died within a few days. Josephus' words were this, he felt a stab of pain in his heart and he was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once that was intense from the start. We pair that with Luke's words, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Josephus will then go on to add that Herod endured that pain for five days before he died at just the age of 54. Now, remember, Luke was a medical doctor. And so Luke tells us specifically what it was that he died from. So if you take Josephus's words about something striking him with this terrible pain, Luke explains to us what that terrible pain was, what the malady was, by explaining that he was eaten by worms and died. Now, that's it for that story. Question, why share such a story in our Bibles? Is this something we all need to know? Is this something that'll edify us? Is this something that, you know, this is really going to help me tomorrow when I'm driving in traffic and I'm a little frustrated at this or at that? Why include this in our Bibles? Very simply, I think one of the purposes of the account is to teach each of us the absolute necessity of giving God glory. That is, that no mortal man should take glory that is due to God alone. Herod did that, and God struck him down. We are reminded, or at least I am reminded, of the account that is found in the book of Daniel in our Old Testaments. There we read of a Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who his, he and his people had essentially conquered the entire world, or at least the world that was in proximity to them. And we read about this Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, who also sought to take glory unto himself that belonged to the Lord. Daniel chapter 4 says this, is not this, the passage is he's standing out on this veranda and he's looking out over his empire that is there. And then he says these words, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Again, if you're familiar with that account, you know what God did next. God immediately struck the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, with a temporary insanity. An insanity that today they refer to as boanthropy that led him to believe that he was actually an ox or a cow or an animal of some sorts. He's the king, and yet he's acting as if he's a cow. And he went out into the fields, and it says for seven seasons, some people think that's seasons like we're familiar with. Some people think that's years, whatever. But for a period of time, he's out in the field and his nails are growing and he's eating the grass and all these kinds of things. 
that we read there. Just prior to that, he says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That passage goes on, and these words are from verse 33. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, and he ate the grass like, like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. You can read the account, Daniel chapter 4, verses 25 to 35. But there, like we have here in the book of Acts, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, Herod receives glory that is due only to God. And, on, and the only God responds to that. And Herod is stricken with something that Dr. Luke describes as being eaten by worms. And of course, as we read, shortly thereafter, it causes him to breathe his last. Again, what do we learn from this? Well, a moment ago, I said the lesson is for us to not take for ourselves the glory that is due to God alone. Truth be told, however, most of us will never find ourselves in a position to take such glory as these two men did. That's possible with the number of people that we have here, that some of us will find fame and glory, but some of us may be in the field of politics or athletics or entertainment. We'll find ourselves in a situation where lots of people are standing before us and chanting these types of things at us or acting as if we are something more than what we are. But the reality is for most of us, that's not gonna happen. But even if that is not the case, every one of us is faced with those circumstances where we might find ourselves tempted to take praise to ourselves when it should go to God. When we are successful in our endeavors, even then, the glory does not belong to us, but to the one who gave us the ability to think and to process and to learn and to apply. Why do you have that ability? It was gifted to you by God. And thus, why do you take glory unto yourselves? Now, of course, we work hard and we seek to accomplish whatever it is that we're desiring to accomplish. But again, had it not been for the abilities that were bestowed upon us by God, none of us would have ever been able to do anything and let alone anything worthy of praise and adulation. And so if this lesson here of Herod teaches us anything, it is this, that we must learn to give all the glory to God. None of us have any talent that God has not given us. None of us have or will achieve any success that God has not made possible. None of us can do any good of which God is not the source. And that is one of our key takeaways from Acts chapter 12. And that is that God alone is to be magnified. Amen? Would you agree? Continuing in verse 24, it says, Now, but the word of God increased, and it multiplied. Herod is dead. In a horribly graphic manner, Herod is dead. But in contrast, notice, the word of God continues to increase and is multiplied. Our chapter begins with Herod seemingly in total control. He arrests and kills James. He goes after the other key leaders of the church, the second being Peter, 
It begins with Herod in complete control. It ends with Herod having been taken off the scene and the word of God advancing to an even greater degree. And so while the lesson of giving God the glory that is due him is certainly one of the lessons of this particular chapter, my inclination is that the reason why Luke included that information is to contrast it, and it's captured in this little word here, but, and that this is the primary reason that Luke includes it, is that Herod began this way, but it's the word of God that continued to increase. It's to provide a contrast between those that sought to hinder the work of Christ through his disciples and those that went forth advancing the work of Christ through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Again, Herod sought to put an end to the Christian gospel. But to quote the Apostle Paul, who a number of years later would write, while he was imprisoned, he would say this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering now, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul, chained there in prison for preaching the word of God, sat there in prison doing what? Preaching the word of God. He'll say in another place that those soldiers that were chained to him of Caesar's household became believers. And then they left there and told other people. Why? Because the word of God cannot be bound. And so chapter 12, verse 24, it serves as a transition verse to this next section of the book of Acts. I've been talking about this over the length of our study here in Acts. And that is there's essentially two parts to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 through 12 primarily looks at the work in Jerusalem and in the outskirts of Jerusalem, and the primary character is Peter, the apostle. Chapter 13 looks at the gospel going forth into all the world, and the primary character becomes Paul. Acts chapter 13 and following is going to chronicle Paul's missionary efforts, not just Paul, he and others, and their multiple journeys around the world to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, as Jesus promised they would do. And so again, we open the chapter with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod seemingly triumph. And we close the chapter with Herod dead, Peter freed, and the word of God advancing further than it had ever advanced before. Truly, the word of God cannot be bound. Verse 25, it says, Now Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem. And when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, uh, whose other name was Mark. Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, having completed their service, and they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. We've been introduced to Barnabas and Saul. Most recently in chapter 11, you may recall that they made their way from Antioch to bring a gift to the believers that were there in Jerusalem. Word had come to them from the Lord that there was going to be difficult times uh, with famine and the like, and that that was particularly going to hit the people of Jerusalem. And so this church in Antioch, I, I think we said it was about 150 miles away, 200 miles away, decides that they're going to support this church and the people down there in Jerusalem. And they sent that gift with Barnabas and Saul. And that's what's being referenced in verse 25 when it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Notice it says that they brought a young man with them 
whose name was John, also known as Mark. Sometimes in our Bible, sometimes in our conversations with other believers, this John, who's known as Mark, is sometimes called John Mark. This is the fellow that's going to go on to write the gospel of Mark. But here he's just a young man. And Barnabas and Saul say, come with us. We learn in Colossians chapter 4 that Mark was the cousin. Some versions use the word nephew because they didn't really have a word for nephew at that time. So John was sort of this younger cousin or relative of Barnabas. We learned that in Colossians chapter 4. We know that this is the same Mark who we read about in the previous chapter, chapter 12, that was the son of Mary, the woman who essentially hosted the first century church in Jerusalem at her house. She was likely also the one who hosted what we call the Last Supper. It was likely at her home that the events of Pentecost occurred. And Mark was the son of this particular woman. So Mark has been around the things of the church. We don't know how young he is, but he's been around the things of the church. He's observed these things. He's probably participated to some degree in the prayer meetings and the communion services and sitting and listening to the teaching. And here, kid, take this and go run it over there, those kinds of things. He's been around for that. But now he's being presented with an opportunity not only to observe these things and participate to some degree, but to more fully participate in ministry efforts as well. And so his uncle Barnabas and his, his uncle's friend Paul, they take him under their wings and they give him an up close and personal opportunity to see ministry done. This is going to be an opportunity for Mark to observe what goes on, not just when everyone is present. We can all observe that sitting here today but also for him to observe what these two ministers of Christ are doing before everyone arrives and after everyone has left. It's going to be an opportunity for him to learn firsthand, firsthand how to do ministry under the tutelage of these two servants of the Lord. Not as an apostle or even as a close companion of the apostles, where we might call Barnabas, but it's just as an ordinary person in the body of Christ who was called to advance the gospel, even as each one of us is called to do so. And Paul and Barnabas said, how would you like to come with us? And I imagine he looked at his mom and she said, go. And so he did. Let's move on to chapter 13. Now, I mentioned earlier that chapter 13 begins a new section of the book of Acts. Again, it's a transition. It's a transition from Peter being the primary character we're looking at to Paul being the primary character we're going to look at. It's a transition from the events taking place down in Jerusalem, where it was primarily Jewish believers, to the, the uh, church in Antioch, where it was primarily Gentile believers. And it's a transition that is going to begin to describe for us the the third stage in the expansion of the gospel. So again, remember in Acts chapter 1, just as Jesus was taken up into heaven, he said these words to his disciples. He said, go back to Jerusalem, wait, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And then verse 8 of chapter 1, and you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, in the first 12 chapters that we've been looking at in the book of Acts, we have seen the church be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even small glimpses of the church going into the Gentile world, first in Caesarea and then initially into the city there of Antioch or Syrian Antioch. Beginning with chapter 13, Luke is going to chronicle for us the expansion of the gospel into the entire Roman world. And chapter 13 marks the beginning of that. It's oftentimes called in our Bibles, if you have headings in your Bibles that the publisher put there, it's many times called the missionary era of the church. And the missionary era of the church is going to be chronicled, the first one, in chapter 13. We won't get to it today, but let's begin the chapter. Verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which God I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, as we read about these events here involving this church, one of the things that we're going to discover about this church, it was a very strong and healthy congregation, which I would suggest to you is the reason why it can become the hub of missionary activity for the remainder of the book. Because a church that is struggling to meet its own needs, emotionally, spiritually, etc., it's very unlikely it's going to be alert to the needs of others or able to do anything about the needs of others. Yet this church in Antioch was a strong, healthy congregation. And I think we have clues to at least four different reasons just in this opening verse or two. Now, number one is this. We considered this a few weeks ago. This was a well-taught body of believers. Barnabas, we learned, taught and encouraged these believers for many months, if not longer. And when Barnabas felt the congregation needed a little bit more than he himself could give to the congregation, as far as his teaching was concerned, we learned a few weeks back that he went on a long journey to go find someone that could teach these people better than he himself felt he could. And of course, he went all the way to the city of Tarsus, and he found that rabbi Saul, who had become a follower of Jesus Christ, and who had a particular way of spe speaking to the people from that Hellenistic background. And he convinced Saul, he forced Saul to come with him back to Antioch, where we learned Saul taught them for a year or more. This was a well-taught body of believers. We learn here in verse 1 of chapter 13 that along, uh, in addition to Barnabas and Saul, that three other men were delivering what God was giving them to the people. This fellow Lucius, this fellow Menaean, and this fellow Simeon. So it's a well-taught body. That's one of the reasons why they're strong and healthy. Secondly, notice this, and this is important. The ministry was not solely in the hands 
are one or two individuals, as it so often is in a congregation. Again, Luke points to the multiple leaders of this congregation that were ministering as God had gifted them to minister. He mentions Barnabas and Saul. We know them. But he also introduces us here to Simeon Niger, Lucius, and Menaean. I mentioned a moment ago how Barnabas went to go find Saul of Tarsus. Perhaps he went to go find Lucius and Simeon Niger and Menaean as well, knowing what the church needed. We also take notice of the fact that when Barnabas and Saul left for Jerusalem, the ministry wasn't put on hold or on pause there in Antioch until the ministers could come back and teach us and lead us and guide us. But rather, it continued on as others used the gifts that God had given them for the building up of the body of Christ. This is a healthy, strong congregation because many people are exercising their gifts that God had given them, not just a select few or even less. Thirdly, we take notice of the diversity of the men that are listed in this opening verse. And so their names again are Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now Barnabas, we learned earlier, was a Jewish Levite raised on the island of Cyprus, which was a Gentile province. Simeon, who was called Niger, that term Niger was a term used by the Romans to describe a person of dark pigment within the empire. And so we could translate this as Simeon the black man. He was another one of their leaders. The fact that he was referred to as Niger reveals that he had more than a passing interaction with Roman society. What it reveals to us, the fact that the Romans would give the guy a name by which they knew him by, is that he had a great deal of interactions with the Roman world. He too was one of the leaders of this congregation. This Simeon Niger is likely the same Simeon that carried the cross of Jesus recorded for us in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, 26, as they're parading Jesus out to be crucified, you recall that he fell from the weight of the, of the cross. And he did it multiple times. And finally, the Romans deputized the guy and said, you're going to carry it the rest of the way. Just a guy standing on the side of the road. A Jewish um, pilgrim to the city there for Passover, seeing these things. The Roman puts his sword out to him. He said, you, get out here, carry the man's cross. And Luke 23 says this, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Tradition tells us that this is the same Simeon Niger. Then we have in verse 1, Lucius of Cyrene. Now Cyrene is located in present-day Libya on the Mediterranean coast of northern Africa. And it too was a Roman province with a small Jewish community. And this fellow comes from there. You remember back in Acts chapter 11 in our study, maybe you do, that the people that went to Antioch that said, we must go there to tell them about Jesus, were men from Cyrene 
and Cyprus. They were the first to go to Antioch to bring the gospel. Perhaps Lucius was one of the men of Cyrene who first came to Antioch preaching the Lord Jesus. Or another fun possibility is since Simeon of Cyrene, the man who carried the cross for Jesus, maybe he went back to Cyrene and told everyone he could what he had witnessed and what he observed and even what he participated in. And maybe he led this guy, Lucius, to the Lord. Either way, both of them are now in Antioch teaching and guiding and leading the people of that church. And then we have this fellow, Manaen, who in verse 1 says, was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Some of your versions may word it this way, he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. One commentator I read referred to him as the foster brother of Herod in order to describe the relationship between these two. And if that's the case, he was much like Moses in the Old Testament book of Exodus, who was raised by the daughter of Pharaoh right alongside her actual physical offspring. At the very least, this man had a proximity to the royal family, to the family of Herod. And it would have made Manaen a man of high station who was intimately close with the ruling dynasty there of Rome. It would also have made him a close observer and probably even an early participant in some of the vile and polluted things that that family is known for having done. And yet the Lord reached him, rescued him out of that and brought him to himself. He saved him and he set him apart unto the ministry. That Herod that he grew up with was the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. He was the same Herod that we read about that held Jesus, uh, a trial for Jesus. Herod and Manaen, they grew up together, but they went very different, they went two very different paths. One killed John the Baptist, and the scripture is clear about it, for no other reason than to please his illegitimate wife and to reward his niece for the sensuous dance that she did for him. That's why he cut John the Baptist's head off. That's the one guy in this little pair of men. The other became a follower of Jesus Christ and a leader in the thriving congregation located in the pagan city of Antioch. And finally, we learn in verse 1 that there was Paul, or Saul, who would later describe himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, one who would be a persecutor of the church, as we learned back in our study of chapter 8. So think about the men that are here leading this congregation, men from widely different backgrounds, each of whose lives were transformed by Jesus Christ. And so there were Africans, and there were what would later be called Europeans, there were those from high levels of society and those who were from the lower levels of society. There were those that were highly influenced by the Romans and the communities from which they grew up and those that were in the little enclaves of the Jewish people. The church had within it, this church had within it all the various groupings of people 
in the Roman Empire. And yet, unlike the Roman Empire, where those groups had very little to do with one another, outside of kind of what needed to be done, this group of believers were bound together by the life-changing work of Jesus in their lives. They were a strong, healthy congregation. Jesus had changed them, and he was knitting their hearts together as one body of people. May God do that in our midst. Barnabas, a Jewish Levite from Cyprus, Lucius from Cyrene in North Africa, Menaean, raised in the king's household, Simeon, firmly entrenched as a person of Roman society, Paul, a Jew from Tarsus, and a trained rabbi. And it's that little band there that exemplifies to each of us the unifying influence of Christ. That men, and of course women from many lands and many backgrounds, had discovered the secret of togetherness because they had discovered for each of themselves the secret of Christ and the oneness that he can bring. Again, may the Lord continue to do that in this body of believers here. Fourth and finally this morning, as we will continue to discover in the coming weeks, a mark of the health and vitality of this church is their others-centeredness. This church was not all about building themselves up and growing their numbers. And I'll make this point to greater degree next time we're together. But in fact, look down at verse 3 just for a moment. It says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. Now the them there is Barnabas and Saul. If Barnabas or Saul were your pastor, would you get rid of them? Probably not. Can you imagine if they were our teachers week in and week out, how privileged of a people we would be? And though the temptation might have been to keep Saul and Barnabas for themselves, because they are a healthy congregation, they willingly send out what maybe we might each call their very best with the purpose of reaching others. Like Jesus, this congregation, Philippians chapter 2, we read this, looked out not only for its own interest, but for the interest of others. And as I've said today on multiple occasions, may the Lord create that same heart and mind in this body of believers here in Mercer County. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for that sort of a heart. Lord, we, we want to be a healthy body of believers. We want to be well taught. We want to all know and discover and use our gifts for the advancement of our kingdom. Father, we want to be a people that come from all different backgrounds, yet have been changed and transformed by Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel message to do that. And Father, we want to be a people, both individually and collectively, that look outside of ourselves for the well-being of others. And again, as we think of Herod, for your glory and not our own. And so, Father, that's our prayer. Reveal to us areas, perhaps, that we need to repent of and turn over to you. Wash us clean from those things. Renew our mind. Create within us a right spirit. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.